and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's always a pleasure to have you here with me today. If you're new, this podcast endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. It's my attempt to give some reflections, host conversations and interviews that all, in some way or another, explore uh, the, the, the totality of spiritual practice, including the highs, the lows, and the plateaus. And um, in terms of my programming this year, we're now in the last month of the summer, we're in August, and I will be releasing about two more episodes, I think, this season before I take a end-of-summer break. Um, I'll be taking about three to four weeks off at the end of the summer from podcasting. I'll be taking a few weeks off with Terry from our teaching, and we'll be doing our own retreat work um, and just getting some rest. Um, But... In the new season, starting next fall, uh, I will be really, I'm really happy to be releasing some conversations and interviews that I've been doing in the back scenes here. Um, and one of the directions I'm going to be exploring in the fall is something I've been wanting to do for a while, which is to bring in friends of mine, friends that I've met on the path, folks that I consider Dharma sisters, Dharma brothers. And I want to have, uh, try to have more ongoing conversations with these friends as a way to really roll up the sleeves and get into the the, um, the deeper elements of what real life, everyday messy practice can be like. And yesterday I just recorded a, the first of these uh, conversations with a, a dear friend of mine who I met in Burma. His name is Greg Berdoulas. I met him in Bur- Burma when I was on a two-month retreat. And he was there already as a monk, uh, who, and he was in the two-month retreat, he was in the middle of his seven-year experience of being a monk. Um, so that was a great conversation, and it really gave me a sense of the direction that the podcast is going. So I just want to give you a little heads up on that. This episode today is a Dharma talk I gave earlier this week, where I continue to reflect on uh, the the. Chinese Taoist philosopher named Chuangzi. I, I reflect on Chuangzi's parable of the butterfly dream. And as you'll hear, what I'm trying to express or reflect upon in this parable or with this parable is how Chuangzi is inviting us to raise questions, to raise really important questions about the nature of our consciousness, the nature of the state we're in, whether we're in a dreaming or an awake state. And I think he even intimates in towards what the enlightened state might be, or what the enlightened mind might be. Um, So I I hope you enjoy that talk. And if you would like to practice with me and Terry, my partner, we offer online yoga classes in yin yoga. We offer online classes in qigong. Actually, Terry teaches a class or two classes that combine yin yoga and qigong in in a really interesting and creative way that many people are loving. Um, and we also teach some meditation. I teach a meditation class once a week, giving a talk and uh, some guidance and then discussion. So if, if any of that is of interest to you, you can join us uh, by becoming a member to our sangha. We call it the Riverbird Sangha. We're based here in Maine, in Durham, Maine, which is just contiguous to Freeport. And, um, you know, it's a way to support, if you join, it's a way to support our work. It's a way to support our podcast. But more importantly, it's a way to support your own practice. And everyone's practice, including my own, needs consistency. And so our main heart's intention that Terry and I share is to support individuals within their practice. 
Um, we don't really get into what you need to practice. We offer suggestions, but we mainly are trying to support people in the continuity of their practice. So if you'd like to join us, please consider becoming a member. There's a link for you in the show notes, um, and you can head over to joshsummers.net forward slash sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A for that. And lastly, before I give the talk, Terry and I are also teaching a two-part uh, practice series starting August 6th and finishing on August 13th. So it's two sessions, two three-hour sessions, practicing Qigong, yin yoga, meditation, and having reflective discussion together um, each session. So if, if you'd like to dive in more deeply to your practice, please check out our sadhana sessions. Those are our practice sessions coming up. We'll have more throughout the year. Stay tuned, but we're really excited about these. And uh, lastly, just want to say I hope you're well. I know uh, tensions are high, continue to be high in many corners of the globe, if not the entire globe. And uh, my anxiety level is high. It's been high for a while, and um, it makes life difficult. I know that personally. So if you're struggling, if you're feeling the squeeze of, of worldly tension and possibly personal tensions, no, you're not alone, and um, I just want to wish you the best, and I hope your practice provides tools and a sense of refuge within the storm that we're in. So thanks for your practice, and now without further ado, from captive to captivated. For tonight's talk, um, I'd like to pick up on where I left off last week. And in last week's talk, I introduced and, and shared a, a very well-worn teaching from the, uh, the Taoist sage Zhuangzi, who lived roughly in the late 4th fourth, fourth century BC. And um, historically, and I was just reviewing this earlier um, in a book on Zhuangzi, that uh, the, the, the Christian monk Thomas Merton wrote, um, where he said that uh, Chuang's is really the, the pivotal philosophical figure um, in China, whereby the more the ascetic Indian form of Buddhism that originated in India, but when that ascetic form of Buddhism migrated east into China, it converged with Chuangzi's philosophy and ultimately gave birth and gave rise to Zen or Chan in China or Zen Buddhism in Japan. So he's an incredibly uh, influential and central figure in terms of uh, spirituality. And what I like about reading him again now is how you know, simple and childlike and playful many of his parables and, and teachings are. And so I just want to review the one that I shared last week, which is roughly referred to as Chuang's butterfly dream. And in reviewing it again, I really want to try to put it in context with what he's saying about the nature of existence, <clears throat> what he's intimating about um, the nature of consciousness. And ultimately, and this is the, the where I think it it leads, it, it invites us as the listener, as the audience that he's referring to or speaking to, it invites us in the audience 
to explore what he's pointing to in our own experience. And I would want to suggest that meditation reveals exactly what is contained in his little parable here. So the parable, again, is just very simple. He says, once upon a time, I, Zhuangzi, dreamt I was a butterfly, fluttering hither and thither to all intents and purposes a butterfly. I was conscious only of my happiness as a butterfly, unaware that I was Zhuangzi. Soon, I awakened, and there I was, veritably myself again. So he dreamt he was a butterfly, and he's awakened, and he's Zhuangzi again. He knows he's Zhuangzi. But then he says, and this is the final line, but now I do not know whether I was then a man dreaming I was a butterfly, or whether I am now a butterfly dreaming I'm a man. And you know, the little teachings like this can be so fun to, to carry with you through, the, through your day or through your week and, and invite into your practice. And the more I've been sitting with this very simple little parable, um, you know, I, I keep, feel like I keep seeing it in deeper layers and deeper, deeper uh, elements of it uh, start to reveal themselves or, or open up in me. So it's part of the reason why I want to repeat this a little bit tonight. Um, but the, on, the on one level, um, Chuang is describing, I think, a very common experience that we have uh, kind of in large cycles in our life, where, you know, literally on a daily cycle where we're sleeping at night and we might dream while we're asleep and then we wake up and we realize, okay, we're no longer in the dream. But I don't think he's just intimating just that, because I, if you're, you've been here for a while, you know, as a meditator, when you endeavor to be awake and aware to what's going on in your present moment, one of the things you encounter is the, uh, the unbidden tendency, meaning it's not something you, uh, you consciously cause to be, but you recognize, you wake up to the unbidden tendency of your mind to function as though you're in a dream state. Where, the, where you kind of get swept away by a, a story or a fantasy or a, a memory or a fear or an anxiety. <clears throat> and that takes us out of the immediacy of what's happening. And, and we're in a way like the butterfly in that dream state. And what's really, I think, exquisitely simple but precise, there's an elegant precision <clears throat> to how this translation is actually phrased, is that you have Chuangzi using the first person I. And what he says is when he's dreaming as, that he's a butterfly, the I, the sense of self, the sense of a me, the I, was only conscious of the butterfly. So he's, I think he's giving us a, a real hint about the nature of consciousness in a dream state. I want to say that again. I think he's giving us a real hint of what the state of consciousness is like in a dream state, which is that in the, 
the sense of an I, the sense of a me, is only conscious of that state. In this case, it happens to be a kind of a cozy, cuddly state where your butterfly fluttering hither and thither and just experiencing the, the happiness of a butterfly. But the dream state, you know, if you've, I don't know what your dream states are like, but if your dream states are anything like my dream states, they tend not to have that rose-tinted color of, you know, children's books and butterflies. But the dream state is much more of a, um, a waking nightmare. But it, the, the, the experience of the dream is similar in that the sense of I is completely conscious only of being in that state. And I think that that qualifier will make more sense when we consider how Chuangzi describes what it's like to wake up. So in waking up, he says, it, there's a sense of, I am now myself again. There's an immediate knowing of that you're, that, oh, I'm back. The real me is here again. He says, I wakened and there I was veritably myself again. But then the key, and this is where I think the whole kind of deeper exploration of what he's pointing to opens up is the question that then arises in his mind or the question that comes up for him. So once he's awake, he starts to question reality. Meaning from a sense, from the conviction of I'm no longer dreaming, I'm awake again. He then asks, well, how do I know I'm dreaming or really awake? Now, I'm going to, you know, sitting there in the audience tonight, ask you, how do you know you're awake versus dreaming right now? And you might not know how to prove it or defend it or write an article about it. But you know, and the point I want to make is when you ask yourself that question, what kind of state are you brought into through vis-a-vis the question? What kind of attention? What kind of presence? What kind of listening, seeing are you brought into when you're willing to question everything? And I think it's that a it's what he's able to do in the wakeful state, what Chuang's is able to do in the wakeful state, i.e., he's able to question, is what defines in some respect. This is what I'm reading into it. I think that defines how we know we're awake. Because if you're in the dream state, just like the butterfly was only conscious of butterflyness, the butterf- in the dream state, the butterfly nor Chuangzi could question, is this real or is this not real? Am I Chuangzi as a butterfly or butterfly as Chuangzi? The question can't arise in the dream state. But it's only in the wakeful state that we can be both present to what is and then question it. 
So I think there's a there's a clue there. I think as I've been sitting with us, this, this is one thing that has uh, sort of struck me is that part of being awake is a knowing that you're awake, but there's a self-reflectiveness of being able to hold a question. Now, the, the parable doesn't really, I, I think the depth of the parable doesn't end there. But it, and it kind of, in some ways, and then this is my interpretation now, I have not consulted external interpretations. So this, this, this interpretation is um, mine and mine alone, giving, meaning all the mistakes in it are, are mine to bear. But he raises the question, am I dreaming? Am I awake? When he's awake. And it's a question he can't answer. He doesn't know. And some might be tempted to think, well, that's a, you know, that's just because he's asking a silly, stupid, childish question. But his, his, his resistance, you could say, his resistance to answering the question, I think, speaks to a refusal to choose. It's a refusal to choose between yin and yang. It's a refusal to choose between this and that, saying this is true, this isn't true. That's real, that's not real. This is the real me, that's not the real me. It seems to hold a resistance to making absolute statements about anything. And you might ask, well, what's the point of that? Why, how can that lead to anything good if we refuse to make absolute statements or absolute commitments? That's correct, that's incorrect. And now this is where I, my interpretation is, does owe significantly to some of my reading on, on Taoism, which is that I know folks like Zhuangzi put a, I'm trying to think of the phrase for this, but they put a real like spiritual premium, if you will, on spontaneity, the ability to be spontaneous, to improvise well. And I think in that context, I think what this inability or resistance to answering his own question around whether he's a butterfly or a man dreaming he's one or the other, is a resistance to committing to a position that would obstruct a spontaneous response. It's only by questioning and holding both that the self is able to be fluid and spontaneous. And that can all sound really, you know, conceptual, philosophical, abstract. Um, so I, I want to try to root what I think Chuang's is pointing to here and inviting us to explore and experience ourselves. I want to try to root this reflection of Chuang's in something that I came across recently from, um, it was actually in a newsletter that Greg Thomas, one of the guests I had in the podcast, Greg, Greg Thomas put this out in his newsletter. And it was a, a little bit of a, a clip on YouTube of the, the jazz pianist Herbie Hancock 
reflecting on an experience he had when he was playing with Miles Davis in the Miles Davis group. And Herbie said, the band was playing one night, and he didn't say where, but he said the, the gig was going hot, meaning it was tight, everyone was grooving, it was just really hot and fine, a fine, fine performance. And they were playing the, that very famous song, So What, that Miles composed. And Herbie said, Miles was taking one of his beautiful solos. And in the middle of his solo, Herbie said, I played the wrong chord. And there aren't that many chords in that song. So for Herbie Hancock to play the wrong chord, this is a major flub. And he knew it was a big mistake. And he said, after he played the wrong chord, Miles paused for less than a second or so. And then the next few notes that Miles played, Herbie explained that he said, those next few notes made my wrong chord right. He made it sound right. And Herbie kind of reflected that, you know, he's saying he didn't, Miles didn't judge the wrong note and get all upset, wrong, didn't judge the wrong chord and get all upset and say, why are you doing that, you idiot? I'm sure he did that other times. But in this one, he took it and responded spontaneously. He didn't make the judgment. That's the wrong one. I, that can't be played. Took what was what was actually happening and responded spontaneously with wisdom. Now, this, I think, illustrates what Chuang is getting at in terms of a spontaneous response to life when we're awake. But it also speaks to the skill that's required, the training that's required to improvise spontaneously well. And that's what we do in practice. This is, this is a, a kind of a metaphor I want to give for meditation. That In meditation, we're training ourselves <clears throat> to improvise spontaneously well. A lot of people, when they think of jazz, if they don't know much about jazz or they think about improvisational music, they tend to think, oh, it's just this music form where musicians can play whatever they want. Play whatever they want. There are no wrong notes. But if that's the case, then I guarantee you wouldn't want to be listening to most imp improvisational music. The great improvisers steep themselves in the, the kind of the, the heritage of their art. They steep themselves. They listen to all the greats. They learn all the standard melodies. They learn all the standard melodies in all 12 keys, fast and slow. There's an incredible amount of training of learning the terrain, learning the soundscapes, learning the rhythm, learning the language, the lexicon, the vocabulary, so that when they come time to improvise, they're not just playing whatever they want. Everything they're playing is a response to what's happening now with the wisdom of understanding the landscape and the heritage. So in our practice, we're learning our own landscape. We're learning what we're like in different states of consciousness, 
we're learning about the things we react to, how we react, when we react. We're learning about what it's like when we're not reactive. And as I often try to su suggest, you know, the, the themes and topics of your meditation are precisely the themes and topics that you're training to be with. Learning how to be with, learning how to be spontaneous in a way that's not just, you know, fluttering hither and thither like a butterfly, but it's this trained spontaneity from awake, from wakeful presence. So I just wanted to, to give you some of those reflections tonight and, um, you know, just to, again, to maybe drill it into the meditation process, now just to go through it one more time. Isn't it this way in meditation? When, when you meditate, when we all meditate, we look at this ourselves tonight when we start to practice. Isn't it like we find ourselves again and again waking up? And, you know, as I try to say until I go blue sometimes, you know, so many people carry a burden in their spiritual journey around seeing themselves wake up from dreaming. Like, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have been dreaming. Why did that keep happening? Such a, you know, I'm such a terrible, lousy meditator. I'm still just a toddler. Let's get over that rap. Let's let that gig, let's let that, that put, be put aside. You will see yourself wake up again and again. And if we're in, engaging with the Zhuangzi here, what is that like? How, you know, first off, when we wake up, usually, you know, in the meditation, it's like, oh, now I'm back. I'm awake again. But we, in, in a sense, we, we take that for, for granted to the degree that we become complacent to it. We've all done it a thousand plus times today already. And we take it for granted. We don't see the miracle of consciousness waking up again out of something that we didn't cause or create. So really, you know, as I try to indicate last week and in the newsletter this week, you know, I was, I'm sharing this to, to instill or infuse a sense of awe for the fact that you can meditate that you can witness the contents of your own mind going into a dream state and waking up. And that, so the subtitle of this talk, or maybe it's the main title of this talk, is From Captive to Captivated. And by that, I'm suggesting this pivot whereby from waking up from the dream state, we're no longer captive to the conditions of the dream. Remember, that's the defining feature of the dream. We can't think outside of it. We can't see outside of it. We are just it. Whatever the dream is, that's our experience. If we're a butterfly, we're just a butterfly. If we're in a nightmare, we're just in a nightmare. But when we wake up out of it, we're able to reflect, oh, that was a dream. I'm awake. I know I'm awake again. <clears throat> and it's from that wakefulness that we're now, we can be, and this is what I'm suggesting, in a state of where we're captivated by the fact that we can wake up. We're, we're fascinated by the fact that we can wake up. And when we're awake, we can now play or practice spontaneously with what we're present to. 
And that's really, you know, if I think back through the instructions of yin meditation, that's what I'm trying to get at there. That with the, the, the permission to play your edge, the receptivity to waking and dreaming, those instructions contain these explorations. So by playing the edge, it's like we're, we're starting to learn how do we, can, we can dance spontaneously with what's happening. Not in a very tight, rigid way, like, oh, this is the rule, I will always do X. Part of playing the edge is you have permission to choose what you do, make different decisions. Do you go to the breath? Do you go to the hands? Do you hum? Do you open your eyes? Do you listen to sounds? Do you recite a mantra? Do you repeat phrases of kindness? <clears throat> so, if I may close here, I'll just say, in waking up, what can we practice? How can we practice spontaneity with our experience? How can we be captivated by the the possibility of being spontaneous with our experience when we're not in the dream. All right. I hope you enjoyed those reflections. And, you know, um, something that came up in the discussion of the Sangha after that talk that I, you just listened to was um, sort of just the, the, the reflection around and taking this into one's practice, literally practicing to examine and be curious around what is it like for you when you wake up? Or in other words, how are you waking up? When you wake up out of the dream state, are you waking up with a sense of tension and frustration and self-condemnation and I've got to double down and try harder and this was an error? Or are you waking up with appreciation, with a sense of celebration that, oh, my mind's awake again. Oh, I can be, I'm out of the dream and I can be conscious and I can reflect and I can look into and I have spaciousness and there's possibility for spontaneity. To be really curious about how you're waking up. And I would suggest that if you just took that one question, how am I waking up in my meditation? That would open up and deepen and broaden and really enliven, I would say, enliven the whole journey. So I, I just want to leave you with that brief reflection. And once again, if you'd like to practice with me and Terry, do consider joining our, our Sangha. Your membership is tremendously helpful to supporting our work. We rely on your support for our work. This is the only means we have of supporting ourselves with our work. So it's me holding out my, uh, in a sense, my monk's begging bowl for sustenance. And if you're able, we really appreciate and we look forward to practicing with you. Um, until next time, I wish you all my best. We send you our best. Take good care. Stay strong. Keep practicing. Much love. And we look forward to seeing you in the next episode. <laughs>